You are listening to Primary Care Perspectives, a podcast where pediatric experts from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia discuss the primary care issues that are on their mind and the hot topics that all pediatricians see affecting their daily practice. This podcast is for general informational and educational purposes only and is not to be considered as medical advice for any particular patient. Clinicians must rely on their own informed clinical judgment in making recommendations to their patients. Hi, I'm Dr. Katie Lockwood, a primary care pediatrician at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, and today I'm talking about the health care of children in foster care. Joining me is Dr. Kristen Fortin, who is a medical director of the Fostering Health Program at Safe Place, the Center for Child Protection and Health at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. We're doing a bit of a round table on foster care today, and I have some special guest speakers. Joining me is a, a team of residents who are interested in the health care of children in foster care, Dr. Zoe Bouchel, Dr. Shari Gitlin, and Dr. Joshua Sperling. Thank you guys for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thank you. I'm going to start with a little bit of background. So between 400 to 500,000 children are in foster care in the United States on any given day. Because children in foster care have a higher prevalence of physical, developmental, dental, and behavioral health conditions than any other group of children, the AAP has identified them as a population with special health care needs. Unfortunately, clinicians and caregivers often face significant barriers in providing appropriate health care services to children in foster care due to a variety of factors. These include time and resource constraints, diffusion of authority among caregivers and courts, and incomplete or unavailable health information. As primary care pediatricians, it's important that we educate ourselves on the special health care needs of children in foster care and understand the unique screening and preventative care recommendations so we can best care for this vulnerable population. To start our discussion, I'm going to turn to Dr. Zoe Bouchal. Uh, thanks so much, Dr. Lockwood and Dr. Fortin, for sitting down with us and talking about this uh, important topic. Uh, so I wanted to start off with the basics. Um, so first, what are the most common reasons that children are placed in the foster care system, and what are the primary types of foster care? So foster care is a temporary living situation that occurs when there is a crisis and when the child welfare system and the courts determine that children can't remain safely in their homes. Some of the most common reasons for foster care placement are neglect, parent substance abuse, physical and sexual abuse, housing, and parental incarceration. Some of the important points for primary care are that some of the reasons for placement include things that could be helped by community resources like housing or parental substance abuse. So thinking about how we can strengthen our practices to support families and prevent foster care placement is important. Another important point is that foster care is a temporary placement. So thinking about being a medical home and advocating that you can continue care before foster care placement, during and after, and keeping the parents involved is an important part for primary care providers. I think the second part of your question was about the types of foster care. So some of the main types are kinship foster care and non-relative foster care. So when a child's placed in foster care, the child welfare system will first try to identify a relative that could provide care for the family. And that would be examples of grandparent, aunt, uncle. And then in some cases, children are placed with a non-relative. And another type of placement is a group home or a temporary placement for teens. 
Uh, thanks so much for clarifying that. I think that's really important for primary care doctors to be able to understand. I'm going to pass it over to Dr. Gitlin uh, for our next question. So research suggests that 30 to 80 percent of children come into foster care with at least one medical problem and one third have a chronic medical condition. It's common for these to go undiagnosed and untreated. What are the most common medical issues you see and why is it that so many go undiagnosed or untreated? Yeah, in our fostering health program, we do see the same prevalence that you mentioned in the literature. The vast majority of children who we see will need at least one community referral to a community agency or to subspecialty care, in addition to a really solid primary care in a medical home. And a lot of the issues that we see are similar to what other children would experience, but because of the barriers to care that you mentioned, it sometimes requires extra advocacy or time on behalf of the primary care provider. So one example would be failed vision screens. We see a lot of children, about a third of children we see fail their vision screens. But some of the other issues that they experience that other children wouldn't would be that when they transition from home to home, they could lose their glasses. So then when it goes time to get new glasses, the insurance might not be willing to pay for them at that time because they'd already gotten their glasses for the year. So that would require extra advocacy. Similarly, we see a lot of children with asthma. But unlike children who aren't in foster care, sometimes the medications get lost when they transition from home to home, or sometimes the foster parent might not be aware or the child welfare system might not be aware of the diagnosis. So that requires the pediatrician to become aware through review of records and then provide education. We also see a large prevalence of obesity or overweight children. And then other issues we see are cardiology issues that got lost to follow-up. We'll see, for example, a child with a VSD who was supposed to follow up yearly with cardiology who didn't get on the follow-up, so we would reinitiate the referrals. Another important one we see is allergies, and sometimes the foster parents or the child welfare system wasn't aware that a child needed an EpiPen for allergy to shellfish or peanuts. So that's a crucial intervention that the primary care provider can do by reviewing records and identifying the allergy and then making sure that the foster parents educated and the child's educated and that they have their EpiPen. I think the second part of your question um, related to barriers to care. So the barriers to care can occur both before placement and after foster care placement. So sometimes when children are in a situation and they experience neglect or there's difficulties in the home, they may not have had the routine primary care or they may have changed from provider to provider and then some of the medical recommendations or the routine care didn't get completed. And then once a child is placed in foster care, there can continue to be some barriers like we talked about, how sometimes the key diagnoses aren't notified to the foster parents or just aren't identified. And we also talked about some of the insurance issues that can occur with trying to get the medications refilled when they had just recently been refilled, but kind of got lost as patients transition. Yeah, that definitely sounds like a lot of really important barriers for primary care physicians to be aware of. And that's helpful that you've been talking about that with us today. Um, and now I'm going to pass off to Dr. Sperling. All right, thank you, Dr. Gitlin. So research also suggests that up to 80% of children enter foster care with a significant mental health care need. What are the most common mental health care needs for the children that you see? And what are the main factors that put these children in foster care at higher risk? That's a great question and a really important one so that we can identify the mental health needs and make sure that kids are getting the resources that they need. If you look up the list of what averse childhood experiences are, one of them is family separation. So 100% of children in foster care have experienced family separation because they've been removed from their families. And that's such an important thing for children to have the stability in their families and that's disrupted when a child's placed in foster care. 
Oftentimes, children also experience other traumas, like we mentioned, neglect, abuse, or death of a parent. So all of these trauma exposures can have an impact on the mental health. Another thing that can be something that's important to consider is that trauma symptoms can be similar to other mental health conditions like um, anxiety or it can be similar to ADHD. But sometimes the trauma can go unrecognized or misdiagnosed so children aren't really getting the proper services that they should be getting that are trauma focused. So one thing a primary care provider can do is make sure that referrals for mental health are really um, trauma sensitive. Another issue with, we talked earlier about sometimes children get disjointed care or they may switch from provider to provider. So when children are in foster care placement or before or after, they may be seeing more than one mental health provider. And research shows that children sometimes get prescribed more than one medication that's in the same class or that's supposed to be treating the same thing. So another role for a medical home that's overseeing the care would be to do med reconciliation and look at all the medications that the child's receiving and make sure that there aren't duplicates. And if that is noted, then to follow up with the mental health providers and advocate that the medication be reconsidered. Great. That's a really important perspective to have and really an interesting lens to think of all of our kids in, in foster care as having a history of trauma. Really important to, to remember. So just listening to you talk, one of the things that becomes clear is that these kids can be very medically complex and require pretty significant resources and follow-up. So I'm curious, are there resources for primary care doctors like screening guidelines that can guide us in the primary care clinic to help make sure we're doing everything that we can for these kids? So that's a great question, and there are a lot of resources that are available that um, could be available online. The American Academy of Pediatrics has a lot of great resources. They have a website called um, Healthy Foster Care America, and there are also a lot of AAP guidelines that will help providers. So there, in 2015, there was a technical report and a policy statement put out by the AAP that really outlined some of the medical needs and some of the guidelines for providing care. And that was actually based on consensus, expert consensus, that was written in a book in 2005 by AAP District 2 in New York. And if you actually Google that um, AAP District 2 Fostering Health, you can download that book for free, and it goes through a lot of important background information and the AAP guidelines. And the main guidelines that are for children in foster care are that they get an initial health screening within 24 to 72 hours of their foster care placement. So kids who are um, really young infants or children who have known issues like asthma or allergies should be seen within 24 hours to make sure that they're stable and that they have all the medications that they need. The AP recommends that there's a comprehensive health assessment within 30 days, and that health assessment will allow the providers to the time to gather records, review all the records that are available, to address all the aspects we've been talking about, like mental health, also development, and their global physical health. The AP recommends a follow-up within 90 days to check on how kids are adjusting to care and how those recommendations are being implemented that you've made at your comprehensive health visit. And the AP also recommends additional periodic visits um, above and beyond what children who aren't in foster care would get. So it does vary by age, but the, for the oldest kids, it's recommended for at least every six months, which is more than what children who aren't in foster care would have recommendations. So it sounds like those guidelines are really helpful. Has CHOP put together anything to help providers really get down to what we can do um, in our day-to-day -day practice to help these children? Yes, CHOP does have a clinical pathway 
for the medical evaluation of children in foster care. And it does have links to all the AAP websites and guidelines. It also summarizes some resources for parents and families and talks about some issues to consider if you're having questions about consents or who you can share information with. So what guidance would you provide to primary care pediatricians and physicians in general about this issue? Good way to approach it is think about how you communicate with any parent. So if you're seeing a teenager, you know that the teenager is the person who's going to control release of information about reproductive health or mental health issues, unless of course there's a safety issue where you need to file a report or inform about a safety concern. So it's a similar for children who are in foster care. If you're working with a teenager who's asking about reproductive health, you wouldn't automatically share that with a foster parent without first getting permission with the teenager. But if you're working with a child in foster care and you're aware that they have an allergy that needs an EpiPen or that they have asthma or about their follow-up appointments, then you should um, communicate that with, with the foster parents because that's a safety issue if they didn't have that information. And one of the things we talked about at the beginning is how foster care is a temporary placement and reunification is most often the goal. So being able to also communicate with the parent is, is also, um, unless you know that the parental rights have been terminated, you're able to share and you should share information with the parent because that will help in the reunification process. I think one of the other things that can be difficult for primary care doctors uh, beyond just the sharing of medical and family history is discussions around consent, either for a procedure or treatment. Uh, so how do you recommend we navigate this? What are some of the differences mm -hmm. in consent for children who are in the foster care system? Yeah, there are a lot of variables that can influence consent. One thing to think about is the nature of the treatment. Is the treatment an emergency? Is it non-routine or is it routine? So like any child, if there's a need for emergency treatment and it's not possible to obtain consent, and if you don't do the treatment immediately, the child's life could be in danger or there could be serious risk for impairment, then you would provide the emergency treatment and then clearly document why it was not possible to obtain the consent. For non-routine procedures, that would be anything that you would need a consent for for any child, like a surgery, like a tonsillectomy or an MRI with sedation then um, that could vary by the, the state and agency policy. But in Pennsylvania, it's the birth parents who provide the consent unless the parental rights have been terminated. Hmm. So if you need information about if parental rights have been terminated or who should be providing consent, the child's case manager is the right person to contact to get that information. But as we've been talking about, the, the goal is to reunify and the parents are the ones who remain part of the care and would sign the consent for those um, non-routine. When it comes to routine care, like primary care, then usually when a child's placed in foster care, the parent would sign a consent that would cover routine care, like medical home and primary care visits. So something like vaccines, could we give that uh, to a child who is being seen in clinic with their foster parent, but not with their biological parent? Yes, yeah, so in general, vaccines are covered under the routine care. If you're unsure if the parent has signed the routine care, you could reach out to the case manager. If a parent has chosen not to immunize their child and they get placed in foster care, then you would do the same thing you would do for any child. You would provide information to the parent, but you would not give the immunizations until the parent has provided their permission. But foster parents cannot refuse the immunizations. It would just be the child's parent. That makes sense. 
So something that I know has been challenging for all of us in our experiences in caring for children in foster care and that comes up pretty widely within this system is the issue of fragmented health care and incomplete mm -hmm. medical records. Um, and these really provide a significant barrier for foster parents and for clinicians caring for these children. Um, so what advice do you have for primary care providers to help work through some of these challenges? Yeah, that's an important question and it really does sometimes take more time, um, but really the rewards of caring for this population and seeing the impact that you can have is, is really rewarding. So one thing that you can think about is if there are any resources within your practice, like a care coordinator who could be used to obtaining records or social workers who could help communicate with the child welfare agency. A lot of times the child welfare agency does obtain medical records, so if you can make that connection and get information from the child welfare agency if they've already done some other work. Another um, place that you can get information is the electronic medical record. And if you're lucky, it's a patient that you've been following and you have access to information, and sometimes you can even access it through Care Everywhere. Um, another place is the immunization registries, and that can give you some clues as not only to what immunizations the child has received, but where they've been getting their primary care and where they've gotten their immunizations. So that can give you a hint as who their last provider was, so you could reach out to that most recent provider. Um, and then another thing, a, a limitation with the immunization registry is that it's usually only local, and some children have lived in different states. So if you really get stuck, sometimes the school will have more information about immunization, so that's another place where you could reach out to. And do schools usually freely give out the most recent record? Would that be to the DHS worker or would that be to the primary care office? The DHS worker would be able, or the community umbrella agency um, case manager would be able to obtain information from the school. That's really helpful. So given all the complexities that we've just talked about, are there special clinics or other resources available um, within Philadelphia and the broader health network to help coordinate care for these children? Yes, that's a great question because there are a lot of resources within um, Philadelphia. So every child in Philadelphia will have a foster care agency managing them called a community umbrella agency. And each of those has a nurse assigned through our child welfare system. So that's a good resource that you can reach out to to help coordinate when there's more complex care. We also have our fostering health clinic here at CHOP and we can provide care coordination and we also have an occupational therapist who's part of our team so we can provide multidisciplinary comprehensive assessments and help with some of the barriers that could come up like trying to um, sort out insurance issues and make referrals that are trauma-informed. So we could be a resource as well that could um, help. So in pediatrics we love anticipatory guidance. What counseling can you provide to us as pediatricians that we can pass along to foster care parents? That's a really important question, and I think one key point is just realizing the importance of providing support and anticipatory guidance. So foster parents do tremendous work, and we've been talking about barriers that we face as providers, but the foster parents experience those as well, but on a larger scale. And thinking about, we talked at the beginning about different types of foster care parents, and some are family members who get asked to take children as a kinship care provider. So some of the foster parents that we see are great-grandparents or grandparents who had been done raising their children and then get asked to take um, children and they love doing it, but it's, it's something that is a surprise to them that they weren't expecting. 
Also for foster parents who are non-relative foster parents, it can be hard to anticipate all the challenges that you can experience as a foster parent. So being able to get support from a pediatrician and get services is, is really important. Another component to think about when thinking about anticipatory guidance is placement stability. So when a child is in foster care, placement stability refers to them staying in the same placement versus moving from placement to placement. So when children move around, that increases their risk for behavioral health problems or mental health problems, which makes sense because they're losing their relationships that they've established in their foster care placements. And having behavioral problems is a risk factor for being um, for having placement instability. So that's another thing to remember when you have a foster parent who needs supports and guidance is that your advocacy could help make a child stay in their foster care placement, which could have a really important impact on their long-term health. So keeping that in mind about the importance, some good resources that you can use. There's an AAP trauma guide called Helping Foster and Adoptive Families Cope with Trauma. You can get it by Googling that or by Googling AAP trauma guide. And that has a really great explanation in it about trauma and how it impacts behaviors. It has really great tables that explain what some of the trauma exposures are, what that can manifest in terms of behaviors, and it provides simple tips that foster parents can use to respond to those behaviors. So that's something that you could even print out, especially those tables, and hand to the foster parents at your visit. And then also keeping in mind what we talked about, the placement instability and the need to support foster parents. That Keep that in your mind when you're thinking about services and advocating for community referrals and making a treatment plan that can be executed as soon as possible and get the services as soon as possible. Great. That's some really helpful information and helpful resources. Thank you all for that really great discussion. As you've pointed out, children find themselves in foster care for a variety of reasons and have a higher prevalence of physical, developmental, dental, and behavioral health conditions than any other group of children. I'm going to summarize a few things that I learned from listening to you all. One is that we can get some clues about where children were receiving care previously if we don't have records by looking at their immunization records and school records. The second one is that consent for vaccines is considered part of routine care. Birth parents give this consent to DHS, and DHS therefore gives that consent to us in most cases. The third was that behavior problems are a risk factor for placement instability, which is then a risk factor for further childhood trauma. So advocacy for our patients is important to help their long-term health. To learn more about these guidelines that we've talked about today, opportunities for advocacy, and additional resources, click on the linked resources on our website, which is www.chop.edu slash pcppodcast. There we have links to the AAP's Healthy Foster Care America website, the AAP Policy Statement on Healthcare Issues for Children and Adolescents in Foster Care and Kinship Care, and the CHOP Pathway for the Medical Evaluation of Children in Foster Care, and the Trauma Toolbox for Primary Care. Thank you all for joining me today. This was a great discussion. Thank you. Thank you so Thank much you. for Thank us. you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Primary Care Perspectives. You can download and subscribe to future episodes on iTunes or visit chop.edu slash pcppodcasts for a listing of all episodes. I look forward to our next chat.